our study of Hebrews. We're picking up today in the uh, 26th verse of the 10th chapter. And as we pick up in the 26th verse, we're, you know, we're kind of breaking into, uh, right into um, a thought that's, that's being uh, expressed. And so we want to get the continuity here of, of what's being said. But, but the author spent 10 and a half chapters in basically just trying to, you know, get his readers to understand the, the beauty, the glory, the awesomeness of the relationship that they now had with God through Christ. Because they were being tempted to drift back into their old religion, a religion that was good for the time, but it was a temporary situation, and it was pointing to something greater. So the author is reminding them, look, the greater thing has come. Jesus is the greater thing. He's the fulfillment of all these things. Uh, But because of suffering, persecution, challenges, hardship, and a seeming delay in the promises of God being fulfilled, these people were considering returning to the old and, you know, in, of course, in the process, they would be turning away from Christ. So, so he's writing to them to uh, warn them about doing that. And so as we come to uh, verse 19, after he's, you know, kind of made his whole case, he then says to them, he says, therefore, brethren, he says, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and a living way, he's, he says, let us now draw near. We, we've got the ultimate um, means by which to access God now. So, so let us draw near. We have this great high priest over the house of God. We have uh, immediate and direct access into the presence of God. So let's take advantage of that. Let's draw near. So he exhorts them, let's draw near. He also exhorts them, let's hold fast. Hold fast to our confession. Don't let go of this. This is, this is your prized possession. This is the most wonderful um, thing that there ever could be. You don't want to let go of this. Hold fast to it. And then he also said, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And then he said, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching And then he says this, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So we see here as we connect verse 26 with what we've previously looked at, we see that what he's saying is that there's a connection between abandoning fellowship and possibly abandoning the faith. And so that's what he's warning them about. And so as we come to uh, verse 26, we come to another one of the many strong warnings that are in this epistle. The, the epistle to the Hebrews probably has more warnings in it than any other uh, letter in the New Testament. And the warning is essentially the same all the way through. It's, it's warning them not to turn back, not to go backward, not to draw back, not to not to. Um, you know, go back to, to the old religious system, not to go back to the world, not to go back to uh, anything that might be looking 
appealing to them at that point, but to hold fast and to continue to cling to Jesus. And he says that in order to do that, in order to make sure we do that, we've got to stay connected with one another. And so we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together like some do, but we're to gather and come together consistently. And in, in doing that, we're to exhort one another. And so as we pick up in verse 26, let me read from verse 26 through the end of the chapter, then we'll go, go in and um, look at three different points. So he says, you know, ha- having talked about not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, he says, for if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourself in heaven." Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul." So in those verses, there are three things that we see, three things that stand out that I want to highlight. First of all, he tells us about the certainty of God's judgment. This is probably the most unpopular uh, thing you could talk about in the culture today, God's judgment. But even though it, it is a very unpopular thing, it's a, it's a thing that many people would scoff at, the idea that there's going to be a judgment day. The Bible is crystal clear that judgment is certain. So we see that in the passage. Secondly, we, we see that the writer is making a very personal appeal. He's not writing to people that he doesn't know anything about or have any connection with. He's not saying these things to people um, that he's disassociated from, and maybe he's just heard about them, so he's going to write them this challenging letter, he knows them personally and they know him. So there's that personal um, appeal that he makes here. And then thirdly, we see as we come toward the end of the chapter that there is the call for faith, that he's challenging them to, to continue in the life of faith. So I want to look at uh, the chapter or the verses that we read with those three things in mind. So first of all, he says, he says, for if we sin willfully. Now, the question is what, is, what does he mean by that? Because if we're honest, we would all have to admit we, we've all sinned willfully after we've come to the knowledge of the truth, right? I mean, I, I know I have. There have certainly been times when 
even as a Christian, I have done things knowingly that I shouldn't do. I have said things, or I, I can think of so many times when maybe I've said some unkind word to my wife, and I know in advance I shouldn't say this. There's the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, don't say it, don't say it, be quiet, be nice, be kind, walk away, and then out it comes, I say it. <laughs> so I, I sin willfully after I receive the knowledge of the truth. Or you know, maybe it's not something you said, maybe it's something that you've thought, or maybe it's something that you actually do. So we've all sinned willfully, so it can't be talking about sin in, that, in just that broader, more general sense. That's not what he's talking about here. But let me say this, if we don't understand that, we can be tripped up and, and deceived by the enemy. I know many people who have been radically ripped off by the devil thinking that they had committed the unpardonable sin because they did something willingly after they had come to know the truth. I've often said about this passage here, it's one of the devil's favorite verses because he takes these statements and for the person who doesn't understand the, the context, he uses these things to, to try to condemn them, to try to get them to despair. I've known people that have actually had um, nervous breakdowns because they've thought that they uh, had sinned to the point where there was no longer a sacrifice. We might also call this a reference here to the unpardonable sin. Because it says, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So, so these are sins, or this is a sin that he's talking about that there is no sacrifice for. So we could look at it as the unpardonable sin. But what is the unpardonable sin? Well, the unpardonable sin is only one sin. And that's the sin that he's talking about here. It's the same thing that he's warning against all the way through the book. It's the rejection of Christ. That's what he's warning them about. He's not warning them about sins in general. He's warning them about one specific sin. And notice, you see the comparison when you look at verse 28. He says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law, notice, rejected Moses' law, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So that's the idea. To sin willfully is to reject Christ. To, in the end, finally say, I do not believe in Jesus. I do not need Jesus. I do not want Jesus. I'm fine without Jesus. And to persist in that mentality on to the end, that is the unpardonable sin. Why is it unpardonable? Because sin can only be forgiven through Christ. And if we reject the forgiver, then we cannot be forgiven. So that's the sin that he's warning about. That's what he's uh, wanting to protect them from. Now, lest you're tempted to think, as some have, that God's um, promise to judge those who reject Christ, lest, lest you're tempted to think that that's, well, that's awfully harsh, you know, how, how is it that God could be so harsh over such a small thing like rejecting Jesus? We need to understand what rejecting Jesus amounts to, and he tells us in the very next verse what it is. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he uh, will he be thought worthy of who has, look at what rejecting Christ is, trampling the Son of God underfoot, 
counting the blood of the covenant as a common thing or an unholy thing and insulting the spirit of grace. Man, those are strong terms. So when we sometimes wrongfully think that, well, just rejecting Christ, I mean, what's the big deal about that? I, you know, I've got another religion or, you know, I've got my own way and, you know, Jesus was okay, but I, I don't really need him. How, how could God come down on me so hard for that? Well, in rejecting Christ, from God's perspective, what we're doing is we're trampling underfoot his son. We're just mowing right over Jesus. Jesus is insignificant. Jesus is irrelevant. What do I have to do with Jesus? What do I care about Jesus? I don't need Jesus. And God takes great offense to that because Jesus is God's son and Jesus is the son that God gave. God's most precious possession, if you will, is his son. And as he's given his son for us, he expects us to warmly receive him, not trample him under our feet. You know, if I were to give my son for in exchange for somebody else and you know, hypothetically, obviously, but, you know, if I were to do that and there was a complete disregard for what I had done, there was just a total unthankfulness. You know, hey, it was just your son, who, you know, who cares? You know how offended I would be? You know how offended you would be by something like that? Well, that's how God looks at the whole thing. He's offended. He sees it as trampling uh, the son of God underfoot and then counting the blood of the covenant as a common or an, an unholy thing. Now, the word holy means, uh, you know, it's set apart. It's in a, it's in a category all by itself. So uh, unholy and common mean the same thing. Common meaning, of course, like we think common. Oh, it's just common. There's nothing unique about it. There's nothing extraordinary about it. Well, the blood of Jesus is the most precious thing in the universe. It's the blood of the Son of God. Uh, we're told in Acts 20, 28 that the church was purchased with the blood of God because, of course, the Son of God is God. He's God the Son. He has the same nature as the Father. So from God's point of view, for those who reject his Son, it's as though they're, they're looking at his blood, which is to God the most precious thing. And again, just... Think with me for a second. Put yourself in the position that you, know, you somehow ended up you know, giving your child that you love more than anything in the world for the life of others. His blood had to be shed and they look at it and say, well, what's the blood of Jesus? That doesn't matter. There's no difference between the blood of Jesus and my blood. There's no difference between the blood of Jesus and the blood of some animal sacrifice. There's no difference. Again, this is, this is highly offensive to God. And he puts it, I think he kind of you know, sums it all up in this is really an insult to the spirit of grace. You know, when you, when you insult somebody, you know, it's a highly offensive thing to insult somebody intentionally, you know, to intentionally insult somebody. I mean, sometimes we can insult people without intentionally doing it. You know, we said the wrong thing and it insulted them and we come back and say, God, you know, I didn't mean that. I'm sorry. But, you know, for the person who just sets out, I'm going to insult this person. I'm going to humiliate them. I'm going to embarrass them. I'm going to make them feel bad by, uh, you know, my actions or, or by my statement. Rejecting Christ is insulting 
the spirit of grace. It's an insult to God. It's like you're spitting in God's face. That's what it's like. It's an insult. You know, in certain cultures, there are things that are highly offensive, very insulting, kind of varies, you know, from culture to culture. Certain cultures, though, to spit in somebody's face, that is the greatest insult ever. When we reject Christ, it's like spitting in God's face. It's, a, it's an insult. And, but notice he says, insulting the spirit of grace. It's spitting in the face of the God who's saying, I love you. I, I, I want to forgive you. Come to me and let me, let me cleanse you and wash you. And, and, and the response from this person is just to spit in his face. Get away from me. I don't need that. I don't want that. I don't, I don't need to have anything to do with that. Now, you can see just from a human standpoint how radically offensive that is. But that's what the human race is doing to God on a regular basis by rejecting his son. And God declares that there will be a day when there will be a judgment for those who reject his son. And so he goes on and he speaks of that judgment. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Again, the Lord will judge his people. And then he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Boy, I'll tell you, sometimes I think, you know, how can we be so delusional as human beings? You know, how could we be so arrogant? How can, how can we, uh, take the position that we take uh, against God. You know, it's, I mean, sometimes you see the person, you know, maybe somebody on TV, uh, you know, who's got a reputation for being an atheist or something, and they're, they're mocking God and just making a joke out of the whole thing. And I think, wow, you know, how, how could it be that we could be so deceived as to think that we could do that and get away with it. You know, there, there's, there's a time of reckoning that will come. And when you think of how easily we could be snuffed out, that, that's the thing that really astounds me. You know, you, you look at somebody and all their uh, arrogance and all of their boastfulness and all of that against God, and you think, you know, a microscopic little thing could take you out in a minute. You know, or sometimes I think of, uh, you know, natural disaster, catastrophe. You know, man seems so great in his own eyes and invincible and so, so powerful, and yet, you know, a hurricane comes, or a tsunami comes, or an earthquake comes, or something like that comes. And, you know, you would think that after a while, we'd kind of figured out, wow, you know, we're kind of vulnerable here. You know, we're not as safe as we might think we are. We could easily be obliterated, but we don't get it. We just keep going on in the delusion. But there's coming a time when judgment will come, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the idea here, you know, there's the beautiful picture of falling into the arms of the living God where he's going to embrace you and receive you and love you. Falling into the hands of the living God, the picture really is of being arrested all of a sudden, there you are, man. You are under arrest and you are taken off to prison and to judgment. 
That's the picture that he's painting here. And that's the reality for some people that will come. It will come. You know, the atheists are fond of saying that religion is the opiate of the people. And I think Karl Marx, I don't know if it originated with him, but he's often the one who's uh, said to have said that initially. Atheism is, or uh, religion is the opiate of the people. People come under a delusion. They dream of pie in the sky. They don't deal with reality on earth. And, you know, it's just, it just numbs them from having to deal with the truth and so forth. So, you know, atheism is the opiate of the people, or excuse me, religion. But the reality is atheism is the opiate of the people. Because atheism tries to say that you can live any way you want, you can do anything you want, you can hurt as many people as you want, you can destroy as many lives as you want, you can rip off and harm, and you can do all of that, and you never have to answer for it. That's a delusion. That is a delusion because, listen, there's a judgment day coming. And we know that on, on just, you know, on the human level, we know that. We know that, you know, we, we see people sometimes who are criminals. We see people who are evil. And, you know, you just know, man, you know, someday, what do we think in the back of our minds? We think, you know, someday, it's all going to catch up with that person. It, well, what, what goes around comes around. Or, you know, some people say, man, karma, you know, karma is going to catch up with them sometime. Because we know, we recognize that you can't do those kinds of things without retribution coming back your way at some point. And, and you know, it's true. My wife is addicted to crime solver shows. <laughs> addicted, seriously. And she's seen like thousands of them. She could be a, a great, like a private eye or something. If uh, she ever needs to go into another line of work, it'll be detective work, no doubt. And so she watches these crazy things on, you know, YouTube and whatever else all the time. And, um, and you know, I, I hate that. I, well, I, I don't want to get distracted by that. You know, I'm doing other things, but inevitably I get sucked in. You know, I'm there and she's got her little iPad set up and she's watching the thing and I'm over doing something else. And, but, you know, I'm, I'm sort of listening in and I'm hearing a little bit about the story. And, and then, you know, so finally I get, I get totally sucked into the thing. But, but here's my point. What you see as you watch these crime shows is that most of the time, almost all the time, the person gets caught. They get caught, even though they might have, uh, even though their whole thing was, was so clever and it was so well thought out, and they knew that they, would, they could pull off this crime. And most of these are murder uh, mysteries, you know. But it's amazing to just see over and over and over again how, in the end, they get busted. They get caught. And, you know, there's a passage back in, I think it's in Numbers. And it says this, it says, be sure that your sins will find you out. And you know what? It's true. Everybody's going to get busted someday. And people that now, like I'm saying, you know, a lot, a lot of people think they're getting away with it, but they don't, they get caught. But granted, some people do get away with it. At least they think they got away with it because they think that this is the only life. 
But the rude awakening that they have is that there's a judgment that will come in the next life. They might have pulled it off here. They might have pulled off that murder and nobody ever found out. And man, when they finally lay there and they take their last breath, they think, oh, wow, I made it. I got, I got off with it. Nobody caught me. And guess what? The moment they open their eyes, they're right before the ultimate judge who knows everything that they did. So the reality is there's a judgment coming. The context here is that the, the judgment comes hard upon those who reject Christ. Now, that's point number one. Secondly, though, I want you to notice the personal appeal that the author makes. So he says to them in verse 32, he says, well, first of all, he calls them to remember. He says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. And then he says, for you had compassion on me in my chains. So we see that the, the writer here, like I mentioned earlier, he's writing to them as, as someone who knows them. He's writing to them out of genuine personal concern. He has a relationship with them. He's not just as at a distance pronouncing judgment upon these unknown people or warning them about judgment, but he's saying, no, we know each other. And so his appeal to them is, is an appeal based on love. He has a, a genuine concern for them. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to confront somebody about their sin. Sometimes it's hard to speak up and say to someone, look, hey, you're going the wrong direction. You need, to get, you need to get things right. And of course, there are those people out there that feel like they have uh, a ministry of rebuking. And so they go around and they just rebuke everybody. You know, they think everybody's backslidden. They think everybody's falling away and they've got a ministry. You know, anybody who, anybody who thinks they have a ministry of rebuke, I don't think they do. Because real rebuke is, is not something that you uh, glory in doing. It's not something that you feel proud of. It's something that you, you really struggle to do, but you do it out of love. It's not easy to confront people, is it? It's unpleasant. I hate this part of the Christian life. I have to, at times, say hard things to people that I don't want to say. I would rather just not say it but I have to say it. Why? Because of love. You know, if you love somebody, you're going to tell them the truth. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend is going to wound you in order to spare you, even though it's going to be painful in, in both cases, even though sometimes it, it results in misunderstanding and it results in uh, anger but we have to do it. And, and this is what the writer is doing. He's taking it upon himself. You know, we know each other. You ministered to me back at a time. You had compassion on me in my chains. Now I'm, I'm going to reach out to you. I'm going to reciprocate. It's a different situation, but I'm going to tell you what you need to hear. Now, like I said, he says to them, recall the former days. So, you know, it's like, what happened to these people? He says, recall the former days. Remember back to the time when 
after you were illuminated, after you came to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, he says you endured a great struggle with sufferings. You were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulation. You became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains. You joyfully accepted, he says, the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. He's saying, look, what happened? How, how has this come about? Remember how you used to be? And, and how is it today that you're thinking about walking away from your trust in Jesus as the Messiah when back here you were willing to suffer a loss of everything that you had for him? How do you explain that? You know, I have had, at times, I've had to ask people similar questions. People that I've known for years, people who are moving away from Christ, I've had to ask them, look, okay, what, what does this mean? What about the past? What about the, the transformation that seemed to take place in your life? What about your professed love for Christ? What was that? Was that all fake? Were you pretending was none of that real? Were you just under some kind of a, of a delusion? And, you know, sometimes people will say, well, you know, I don't know what was happening back then, you know, but now I, I know. And usually it's because there's something that they want to do that God will keep them back from. And so they're going to forget all the past, forget their commitment, forget even their suffering, and they're joyfully you know, accepting those kinds of things because, no, I've got to have this thing and God's going to hold me back so I'm going to renounce and deny and pretend that nothing ever happened. I don't know if that's where they were, but maybe so. And so he, he asked them that question. You know, look, how did you go from there to, to where you're at today? They joyfully accepted suffering, reproach, tribulation, plundering, so what's happened? Well, what's happened is that things have remained difficult because we see that they were difficult early. And it seems to me, it never comes right out and you know, specifically says it in the book, but it seems to me that they were tired of suffering. And they were disappointed that Jesus did not return in their time frame. It seems that they were expecting things to be different than they actually turned out to be. And so this was now causing them to rethink. But listen, we have to understand that when we decide to follow the Lord, we're following the Lord who was going to a cross. That's where Jesus was going. And, that's what, and isn't that what Jesus said? If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and do what? Take up the cross. Jesus, the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. And, you know, sometimes we are fooled into thinking that, well, you know, when you become a Christian, life just gets easier and everything gets better and it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be just fun and exciting, and you're never going to have another problem, well, that's just not reality. But sometimes even preachers can present it like that. But it's not true. Now, I'm not saying being a Christian doesn't have some really wonderfully joyous and fun moments. It certainly does. 
And it certainly is. I'd be the first one to say that being a Christian is the great adventure of life. I love every minute of it. But if I stood up here and didn't tell you that it's also a life of suffering, I would not be telling you the whole truth. There is suffering. There is affliction. There is hardship. There is difficulty. And sometimes it comes from the invisible realm where we don't really see what's going on, but there's a, an enemy behind the scenes that's, that's coming against us. Sometimes it comes in the form of uh, you know, bodily suffering. Sometimes it comes in the form of just hardship in life. Sometimes it takes on uh, the, the form of fierce opposition and persecution from people who hate the gospel. And they want to harm those who hold fast to it. But that's always been the case. And so he says to them, he reminds them, first of all, in the latter part of verse 34, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven, he says, therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. This is what we all need to know about being a Christian. It is a long distance race. It's a long distance race. It's a marathon. That's what it is. It's a spiritual marathon. And in a marathon, you need endurance. That's what you need more than anything. You don't need speed. Speed's not the issue. You need to be able to keep going. And so it is in the Christian life. It's a there's this, this element of endurance that is absolutely necessary. And Paul the Apostle, when he was at the end of his life, he said, I fought the good fight. I finished my race or I finished my course. Paul saw life as a course and actually it was an obstacle course. He saw it as a long distance run. I have fought the good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. And so it's endurance is absolutely necessary. We have to endure. We have to realize that yes, there is glory. Yes, there is a great reward. Yes, there is, of course, as he even refers to here, there's this enduring possession in heaven. There are the promises that <coughs> we will receive, but in order to do that, <coughs> we have got to endure. Now, sometimes God's will for us is suffering. Peter tells us that, and he says, not to think that it's strange. First Peter chapter four, <coughs> he says, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of the sufferings of Christ. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. And then he says this, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Notice what he said over here in the passage that we looked at. He said, you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, he's saying to them, listen, I know it's hard. I know you're going through difficulty. I know you're suffering. 
I know the challenges that you're facing. I mean, the guy who's writing to them was in prison. He said, you had compassion on me when I was in my chains. He knows what he's talking about. He's been there. But he says to them, you're in the will of God. Believe it or not, you're in the will of God. You know, as we look around today in the world and as we see uh, Christians suffering, and there are many that are suffering greatly, and we look at that and we think how wrong that is, <clears throat> we wonder why somebody's not doing something about it. You know, how come the United States government hasn't, you know, gone to the rescue of these uh, people there, these Christians that are being persecuted by ISIS in the Middle East? How come the UN hasn't done something? And all of those are good questions. I'm not saying that we shouldn't ask those questions, but the fact of the matter is, apparently these things are part of God's will. But we don't, we don't <laughs> when I think about God's will, I, I'm not thinking in those terms. You know, when I say, gosh, Lord, I wanna be in your will. I wanna be in your will so much, Lord man, if I could just suffer more for you. You know, that's not in my mental picture of what I'm praying for. You know, when we pray, God, use me, use me in a great way. I want to do so many wonderful things for you. God, I want to see so many people saved. I want to do all this stuff. And, you know, is suffering there? You know, am I thinking that? And Lord, even if I have to suffer and die to see many come to you, then that's great. Let's do it. No, I'm not praying like that. I'm just, you know, we want all the glorious stuff, but Let's leave the suffering for somebody else. But you know, there are times when God just says, you know, this is my will and this is how I'm going to accomplish my purposes. And you know, this is what we see happening. We hear about the, the horrific things that are happening. We hear about the barbarous uh, behavior of the ISIS people and uh, the, the intense suffering. And yet we see that many people are coming to Christ through the witness of these people who are willing to give their lives for their faith. And many of them, their faith is so small. Many of them have never sat through a Bible study. Many of them have never gone from Genesis to Revelation. Many of them just know the, the basic uh, things about Jesus, you know, that he's the son of God, and they just believe that, and they're, they're willing to lose their head over it. And other people look on, and they see that, and they say, that's powerful. That's real. I want that. And you see, God uses those things. N.T. Wright in his book, um, How God Became King, he said this. He said, we should not be surprised, though many in the church down through the, age, down through the years would be very surprised to hear this, that the early Christians understood their vocation as the followers of Jesus to include as a central and load-bearing element their own suffering, misunderstanding, and likely death. The sufferings of the followers of Jesus, the suffering of the followers of Jesus is actually like Jesus' own sufferings, not just the inevitable accompaniment to the accomplishing of the divine purpose, but actually itself part of the means by which the purpose is to be fulfilled. This is the crazy thing. Jesus came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, follow me, and I'm going to the cross. And that's where you're going if you're following him. We're going to the cross. But remember, something happened after the cross. There was a resurrection. 
And so Jesus calls his disciples, and he's always called his disciples all throughout the ages. He's called us part of our vocation is suffering. So Peter says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. It's not strange. It's only strange if we fail to look at the plain statements of scripture. Here, the author saying, you need endurance so that after you've done the will of God, listen, you're in the will of God right now. I know it's not easy. I know it's challenging. I know there's hardship. I know there's suffering. I know that it might end in death, but... You need endurance so that you can receive the promise. There's something after. There's something that's coming. And, you know, sometimes with trials and testings, they're, they, they come to a conclusion in this life, thank God. And oftentimes, it's after those seasons, we come to the other side and we receive the promise. We receive the reward. We receive a blessing. And we look back and we realize, wow, that was so hard. But we would even say, you know, as hard as that was, I would do it again for the result. I would do it again because of what, you know, came out of it, the good that God brought through it. But even if it never ends in this life, of course, we go into glory. And then it's all, it all makes sense then. But we can't lose sight of that. We have to remember that we've got an eternity ahead of us and that the things that happen in this life are, are really just, just preparatory for that. Now, so he says you need endurance. You need endurance. And you know, there's something so satisfying when you endure. There's something satisfying. And I know from experience, you know, when you don't endure, when you give up, when you, you decide to drop out, you know, before the finish line or whatever, you know, there, there's that, that disappointment. But man, when you just press through and you cross the finish line, you're like, yes, that's right. That's good. This is Christianity. There's difficult times. There's challenging things. But for those who endure, there's a great reward. The disciples of Jesus, they said to him at one point, they said, Lord, we've left everything for you. What are we going to get out of this? He said, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you will sit on thrones with him. And everyone who's given up father and mother and house and business and children and all, all of these things that he lists will receive a hundred times more and eternal life. You see, we have to remember that the goal is in the life to come. And this life might well be challenging it might be filled with difficulties. And of course, the truth of the matter is, if we're going to make any kind of difference for the kingdom of God in this world that is dominated by sin and Satan, it's not going to be an easy road. It's going to have its challenges. But I don't want to overstate it. Of course, there's grace. God gives us grace. But I want to close with these words. Some of you are familiar with these words because they are the words to a song that we've sung over the years here many times over. Some of you, maybe you'll hear them for the first time. It's a simple song. 
I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. No turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I was in Montreal, Canada yesterday. There are four million people in Montreal, and there are about 4,000 Christians. Four million people and maybe 4,000 Christians. A completely secular culture. Catholic Church once had a strong grip on uh, the culture. No longer, Catholic churches are mostly museums today. Nobody goes to them. They are very proudly secular. And faith in God is ridiculous in the minds of most people. And to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus in that culture, you are definitely the minority. You're definitely the weird person in the office or on the campus or whatever the case might be. But you know, I talked to several young men and women who are in university. Some of them are actually you know, teachers in schools, and some of them are young professionals in various businesses and things. And just to see their faith, to see their love, and to know the context, and to know that they're in an environment that is very challenging, but to see the vibrancy and their, their commitment to stand up for Jesus in the culture. Man, I just was so blessed by them and so thankful for them. And may that be the case for us too. You know, Jesus said it. There's two roads, and one is narrow and one is wide. And on the narrow road, there aren't too many people. On the wide road, man, everybody's there. And the big temptation is to just jump onto the wide road with everybody else. But before you make the decision to do that, just remember where it's going. It's going to destruction. The broad road, it leads to destruction. Multitudes are on it. The narrow road leads to life, and there are few that find it. What's the difference? Of course, the narrow road is faith in Jesus. It's trusting in him. And the broad road is, is any, any other philosophy you want to take, any other religion you want to take, any other position. You don't have to have any. You just do your thing. Go out there and it, it'll all be okay, man. We're having fun. We're all partying. We're all on the road together. But the road ends in hell. That's the truth of the matter. And so we need endurance so that after we have done the will of God, we would receive the promise. He says, for yet, yet a little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And here's what I love about the writer. All the way through, he does this. He gives them the strong warning, but he always comes back with a comforting word, essentially saying, hey, look, this is a real danger, but I know that that's not really the case with you. No, I, I, I have confidence. And he says the same thing here. He says, we are not of those who draw back to perdition. No, no, that's not us. We're the ones who believe to the saving of the soul. So he gives them that little word of encouragement. He gives them a strong warning. But then he says, but that's not you. No, you're not going to draw back to perdition. 
you're gonna believe on to the saving of the soul. And let me say this, the final word is this. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's to believe to the saving of the soul. It's to continue to believe. It's not to just, you know, well, I started to believe in Jesus at one point, but I left that. No, if you did that, then you, you weren't a Christian. You might've had some kind of experience. You might've had some kind of encounter. You might've had some kind of emotional connection, but being a Christian is, is a person who believes to the saving of the soul you endure. You believe all the way through. And may that be the case with each one of us.